All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And this evening we begin here in verse 60. So we're going to conclude this chapter tonight. We'll be looking at a portion of this on Sunday morning. But as we've come to the sixth chapter, it's been just an amazing road. It's been an amazing word for us. Christ began by feeding the 5,000. And we understand that that multitude, he had already spoken to them about the kingdom of God. And eventually what was going to happen there in John 6.15 is the people that he had fed, that multitude of 5,000 men plus women and children, and made this statement they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Who wouldn't want a king that will feed you every day? Who wouldn't have a king that can take on, you know, the, the Roman army? And so they had basically an army of about 5,000 already waiting, saying, we're ready, we're ready for your call. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew who they were. He sent his disciples away so they wouldn't be swayed. He sends the multitudes away, and then he goes up to a mountain. He begins to pray. As he looks out upon the water, he sees his disciples struggling. He then walks on the water over to them. They come to that area. When they come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, all of a sudden there, the people who had been fed there on the eastern side looked for Jesus again, and they, of course they couldn't find him. So what did they do? Well, they recognized him. Maybe he went over to the other side where the disciples went. We saw them leave in a boat. And they followed him, followed him, expecting to get food from him again. And he, he made that question. He says, well, why are you guys doing this? He says, I, I want you to labor not the way you're laboring now for this food that perishes. I fed you yesterday, you're hungry again, but I want you to labor for this food which endures to everlasting life. He said that in verse 27. And eventually he tells him, I'm that bread that came down from heaven. I am that living bread. And after he spoke to the multitudes, we learned, according to verse 59, that he had gone into the synagogue there at Capernaum. And he then had this dialogue with these Jews who were the religious leaders. Those were the ones in verse 41 where the Jews complained. We've talked about when they use the term, the Jews are not referring to basic Children of Israel, they're referring to the religious leaders. And after he said these things, we come now to verse 60, and it makes this declaration. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's an amazing thing that we, as readers of the Gospel of John, understand what Jesus has done here in this northern area of Israel called Galilee. What he's done initially, we saw that, that he turned the water into wine, he'd healed a nobleman's son, he did the feeding of the 5,000, and, and it's interesting that here, with everything that he had done, that no man has done things like him before with the authority that he's declared, the authority in which he speaks. And yet what they say is, verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? I want you to understand that his message was not, the, the term in the Greek, it says understand here in our translation, but the better translation should be, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? Because look at the very next verse. It says Jesus knew himself that his disciples complained about this. They didn't complain because they didn't understand they, they, were, they were grasping what it was, but the concept itself was so incredibly difficult. I've got to receive everything that you do. 
And so Jesus asked, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Now keep in mind what Jesus has done here in John chapter 6. So often when I'm standing here at this pulpit, I talk to you about what we commonly refer to as the gospel. We know the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what it is. And Jesus here has been telling them about himself. Jesus has told them of his incarnation. He's spoken to them about his death and his resurrection. Let's take a look at really what he has said so far. In verse 41 and in verse 45, Jesus had made this declaration. Verse 41 of John 6, the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. He talks about his incarnation. I'm the bread which came down from heaven. I was in heaven. I came down here. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. It's so amazing that Jesus here has been speaking of his incarnation. Do you understand, Jesus? I'm standing here. I didn't originate here. I didn't originate in Bethlehem. I left heaven to come here. I'm here, yes, but understand where I originated. I am God who stands here as man. And an amazing thing, we see that he's spoken to them of his incarnation. I am the bread which came down from heaven. He also spoke about his atoning death. Let's continue to read verse 51, and then let's jump over to verse 53, I want to read from 53 to 55, but in 51, after he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, he says, if anyone eats this bread, you have to partake of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now he's talking about willingly giving of his body. Now, of this body, keep in mind that what Jesus is going to do when he speaks of his death, when he speaks of the ministry of atoning, what he's saying is this. You have to understand that my death is going to be bloody. My death is not like I'm just going to just lay down and go to sleep. Because look at what he says in verse 53. Jesus said that most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Do you understand? He's saying that my death is going to be a violent death. My death is going to be a bloody death. I'm not just going to come here, atone for your sins and go to sleep and die. That's not what's going to happen. I am going to be sacrificed I am going to be slain as the Lamb of God. I will be slain. Not, not just lie down and die. Do you recognize what he's saying here? He goes on in verse 54. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. As he's declaring these things, he's talking about his death. Not just the body, but also the blood. And so he's speaking to them first about his incarnation. We saw that there in verse 41 and 51. Then he speaks of his death, that he's going to die for the redemption of mankind. And we see that at the end of 51 in the verses 53 through 55, or 50, yeah, through 55. And so we recognize that his life source, his body and his blood, the work done on the cross is going to be the atoning. It's going to be his flesh and his blood. And now amazingly in verse 62, he talks about what? His resurrection. Do you understand? This is the gospel. In verse 62, he says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? 
This whole chapter has been speaking of him and what we need to believe in. We need to believe in the incarnation. We need to believe in his atoning death on the cross. We need to believe in the resurrection. These are the three elements that Jesus comes and points out here in this chapter. And each point of these is discussing and dialoguing who Jesus is, what Jesus has done to atone, and the resurrection. And so I love verse 62 where he says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Now, uniquely, I want you to recognize that Jesus uses this term in verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man? Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And and it's interesting that we refer to Jesus as what? We refer to Jesus as the God-Man. We do that. Now understand that before the incarnation, Jesus was just what? He was God. That was it, exactly. He was just God. Who being in the form of God, did not consider Robert to be equal with God. The word then what? It becomes flesh. And God becomes a man. Now this is an amazing thing, because at this point, he's not just God now. Now he is what? Now he is a man as well. And as a man, he is this kinsman redeemer. He came to earth and was born of a woman. He now returns after he's been a man, and he remains in heaven as what? As a man. Do you understand that? That we still see the scars on his head. Where'd you get these wounds? They ask him in heaven. I got him in the house of my friends. Do you understand that he was God only? He then becomes incarnate, becomes a man, and he remains a man. Yes, he has this new glorified body, but he still remains a man in heaven. They recognize Jesus as a man. It's so incredible to see that it's a man who's sitting at the right hand of God. Think about that for just a moment. For all of eternity, it was God sitting next to God. It was God and God. And now through the incarnation, his death and resurrection, he is the perfect man. He was And truly is the kinsman redeemer. And as a man, guess what? He can take on that role of what? A high priest. He can now become the mediator between God and man. Why? Because he is both God and man. On one hand, he holds God the Father. On the other hand, he holds us. He's the God-man. And I think it's so important. Don't mistake what's happened here. God humbles himself and becomes a man. Now, think about this. To what could you and I even try to grasp the concept of what kind of lowering of yourself is it that God becomes a man? Now, you and I may think, well, okay, if I became maybe a dog or a deer. No, no, that's, that's way too close. Maybe a bug. Maybe a cockroach. If I became a cockroach, would that be something similar? And I, I go and save a bunch of cockroaches and they kill me. And then forever and ever I have to remain a cockroach. Is that something? Less than that. Do you understand? It'd be like some kind of amoeba. It'd be like some kind of just little organism. Now, now would you be willing to become an amoeba for eternity to save amoebas? Would you become willing to be next to nothing to save that which God recognizes will just reject my love? But there'll be some who believe would you be willing to be an amoeba for eternity? I'll tell you what, I'd let the amoebas perish. And what is man? That you're mindful of him. You're God. You hold the universe in your span of your hand. We're a speck, a speck of nothing. And yet Jesus would become this man. He would become us. 
and he would remain a man. And I love the fact that here he makes this statement of his ascension in verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend? A man sits at the right hand of God forever and ever and ever. He becomes a man. He stays a man. We think the sacrifice was just, okay, come to earth for, you know, 33 and a half years and then become God again. No, you are staying in that form of a man. Absolutely incredible to see what it is that Jesus has done to redeem us. He has become a man. He remains a man. He remains that man. So what? That he could be a faithful high priest. But as a man, guess what? He was fully God. He's that connection. And I think it's so important that verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He, in a most beautiful way, begins to speak to us about who he is as God, that he came down from heaven. He would die an atoning death, a brutal, bloody death for our sins, and then he would resurrect. He would ascend back to heaven, but he would remain a man. And in verse 63, he asks this question. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Absolutely amazing to see that, that John opens up and makes this declaration. It is the spirit who gives life. I want you to, if you're a note taker, jot this down. If you, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to put this verse right next here to verse 63, where it says, it is the spirit who gives life. Just jot this down. John chapter 5, verse 21. Why is that important? When you go to John 5, 21, it makes this statement, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life. Do you understand? The Father gives life. It's the Father who raises the dead and gives life to them. Even so, the Son gives life to all whom he wills. Do you realize where this giving of life comes from? It comes not only from the Spirit, but from the Father and the Son. The entire Trinity is at work in giving you and me life. And so when we see this passage, when Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. Yes, he does. In John 5, 21, it was the Father who gives life. It's the Son who gives life. God, all three of the, the Godhead of the Trinity, desire for us to have life. And they are the ones who impart it. The Father gives life. The Son gives life. And here in verse 63, Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. It's one of these things that when you take a look at this life, he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Now understand, there is no work that you and I can do in the flesh that will give us spiritual life. There just isn't. And I think it's amazing that, that there's nothing that you can do that I can do in my flesh that will connect me to God. That God will say, wow, what an amazing thing you just did. I'm going to pay attention to you. <laughs> do you understand? There's nothing that we can do in the flesh to wow God. There's no amount of works that you and I can accomplish that would allow God to say, yeah, you deserve a cleansing because of what you've done. Remember there in 2 Kings chapter 5, we've looked at it before. I just want to read to you one verse, so you don't have to turn there. But in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13, Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, he goes to Elijah. Elijah sends out a servant. He says, I want you to go and wash in the Jordan, dip seven times. And Naaman gets angry. He says, why, why should I just do this? 
his servant nails something about Naaman. Now, the, the, the spirit says that, yeah, Naaman, he was a, a great man, an honorable man, and a mighty man in the eyes of his master. But what that failed to open up until this point was he was a very arrogant and pompous man as well. Surely the man of God would come out himself. He'd wave his hands over the place and he'd heal me of my leprosy. But the servant asked this question in verse 13 of 2 Kings chapter 5. And the servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? If you had to do something, just conquer an army, conquer a kingdom to be healed of your leprosy, you know this man would have done it. If you do something great, wouldn't it happen? Then God would owe you. He says, how much more than if he just simply says, wash and be clean? You can do nothing great. Your flesh profits nothing. And I think it's important to recognize just that truth of how it begins to unveil. In the Gospel of John, I want to read something from chapter 1. We covered it a ways ago. But it's important because I want you to, one, follow this flow in which we're looking at. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave, not they earned, but he gave the right to become children of God. So we didn't do any mighty works. We simply believed as many as received him. This is the key. You believe in who he is. You partake and receive his ministry of his death and, and burial and resurrection. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And then he says this, who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. You understand, it isn't this, this fleshly thing that you're born into the right family. It isn't about a lineage. It isn't about a work of the will of man. And so he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. He says this, but of God. It's a gift. And I think it's so important when Jesus makes this statement, the flesh profits nothing. We have to grab a hold of that. There's a passage when Peter writes in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You can jot that down. In 1 Peter 1, 23, he makes this statement, having been born again, and he says this, not of corruptible seed. It has nothing to do with your flesh. It has nothing to do with your parents. It has nothing to do with you. You're being born again, not of corruptible seed, not of the fleshly seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Our birth, our right standing with God, Jesus makes the statement, the scriptures just verify it from Old Testament to New Testament through the gospels and the epistles that it is not the work of the flesh. He said it is the spirit who gives life. The father gives life, the son gives life, the spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And then he says this, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. That's why Peter made that statement. He says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It's so important to understand that Jesus is now coming to them, speaking to them. Listen, I've told you about my, my birth, the incarnation. I came down from heaven. I told you about my atoning death and that it's going to be a bloody sacrifice. You're going to see my flesh and my blood. And then I'm telling you, what are you going to do when I ascend where I was before? Now that I become a man, I'm going to go back and sit at the right hand of the Father. Is this going to offend you? 
And so he makes that statement in verse 63. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. I think it's so important to, to recognize that these words are spirit. And these words of spirit are life. It's one of these things where I don't know why it is taking place other than it's just, a, I think there's a full-on belief that it isn't a work of the Spirit anymore. They believe that the Spirit has ceased working through His Word. That at the end of the apostolic age, the gifts are gone, the Spirit isn't working like He used to anymore. And I believe the Spirit is. But what happens is this, because they believe the Spirit isn't moving, we have to generate in the physical sense what the Spirit does in the spiritual sense. We need to make a church that's going to wow the people. We need to have worship that is going to move them and wow them. And we've got to have lights and cameras and, and disco balls and everything to attract them, to create a mood. And the pastor now has to come up and rather than simply declaring the word of God, he has to become instead an actor, an orator, one who can move them with his words. One that can excite them with speed and, and intensity. And then one that could draw them to cry because he's just so sensitive. Really? Rather than just saying, let's worship and declare the word of God, because what more beautiful worship can you say to God than that which he says about himself? Use the word of God to declare to God about himself. He goes, you're right. You're right about what you're worshiping, and a heart begins to move. But it's not because of the wowing of the worship. It's the moving of the Spirit. Do you realize that the whole reason that before our services that we give ourselves over to prayer is we're asking, Spirit, would you move in the fellowship? Would you move in the worship? Would you move in the teaching of the Word? Would you move in their hearts? And because you're not trusting the Spirit to move, we have to manufacture what the Spirit does inside the walls of the church. We have to be the ones to move them. We have to be the ones to wow them. We have to be the ones to draw them in. Rather than just letting it be the Spirit who does the work. I love what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul made this statement. My speech... And my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit in power. And you would say, that's you, Lowell. You can't even pronounce half the names. You can't pronounce half the words. You claim the wrong verses. You say it's Jonah when it's Noah. You make all kinds of errors. And yeah, it's true. Those things happen. But understand it's not with persuasive words of human wisdom. You understand that what I normally do when I'm standing at the pulpit is I give you a scripture. As I'm giving you the scripture, I say, hey, you want to know what that means? Let's turn to another scripture. <laughs> you, you want confirmation of what that scripture is? Now let's turn to another scripture. It's the word of God that's living and powerful. Are there issues in my life, narrations and stories that I could tell to really weave a truth? Yeah, there are. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather give you something that's living and powerful. I'd, I'd rather give you that. One, because my life is so boring. And you don't want to hear about my grandchildren every Sunday and every Wednesday. You don't want to hear about my children growing up. Every so often we'll do that. But for the most part, I'd rather use the scripture. And I think it's important to recognize that Paul he said, this is it. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but it was in demonstration of the spirit and power. That if you came and you received, it's the spirit that speaks to you. It's the spirit that moves you. And I think it's so important that it's not with these persuasive words, but it's in the demonstration of the spirit. And that's why Jesus is making the statement 
He says, listen, it's the spirit, verse 63 of John 6, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. And they're life. And I think it's important that when we come to this understanding that we have to get to this point of when the words of God are spoken to our hearts, what do we have to do? You have to accept them. This is why he goes on. Take a look at verse, I'll read verse 63 again, but I want to read down to verse 65 so you can grasp the concept. Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are truth. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. It's this beautiful thing about coming to him. He recognized that there were those, according to verse 64, who did not believe. Understand, God does his work. God did everything he could. He bought this incredible, beautiful land. It's a great hill for vineyards. He cleared out all the rocks. He put in choice vines. He built the wall around it to protect it. And he expected it to do what? Good grapes. But instead, wild grapes, bitter grapes. And I think it's important to realize everything that he does. And then what is our job? Believe. You've got to accept what it is that God says. You've got to allow the light that God sheds to be that which directs our path. It has to be his light. It has to be him. And this is why he said, Jesus, I knew who didn't believe. Now, amazingly, only God can do this. Only God knows the hearts of men. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people and, and this kind of bothers me a little bit, but there's a lot of people in the church, some are behind pulpits and some are sitting in chairs, who literally says, I can tell you who's a believer and who's not. They, 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 they acted like a believer, but now they're not acting like a believer, and so they can't be a believer. Maybe they were never a believer. Do, do you know, have you seen heaven? Do you know whether his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you know whether she will come again to repentance? We don't know. We see through a glass darkly. An amazing thing is that God knows who are his. But he also knows those who pretend. Now understand, he's going to call them disciples. And, and, and it's going to be one of those things where, where we see that Back in, in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, it's interesting that he calls them disciples. It's not the, the, the disciples in the very clear tense of the 12, but it's in the generic sense of those who were following his teachings. It doesn't mean that all who walked away, none of them came back, but they began to follow him no more. They walked with him no more. They didn't come expecting food from him anymore. And I think this is what's important, that some of them simply do not believe. I want you to see verse 44 for just a moment as we continue on this thought process of us believing. Because in John 6, 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. There's a work of God that comes through what we do. And in the work of God, God is the one who draws them. God is the one who moves. Remember, we, we, we talked about there in John 1.13 where he says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're born of God. God draws. God the Father gives life. The Son gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. These are the keys. And as we see that, we understand that our job is simply to believe. Our job is to receive what it is that he has spoken. And so when we look to this, I just think it's an important understanding that, yes, God is the one who gives life, but we still have to come to that place of receiving that life that God declares. 
Now, there's a passage, and I want you to gravitate to it, because I want you to see, in a sense, a contrast, but in the Gospel of John chapter 12. And what I want to do is this. I want to begin in verse 32, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 39. So John 12, 32, and if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying about what death he would die. And the people answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So when Jesus goes in verse 32, he says the son of man must be lifted up. They understand he's talking about his death. I have to be lifted up. I have to be put upon a cross. I have to die. And he signified by what death he would die. So in verse 32, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people. And they, they, they come and they say, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Because in verse 34, they said, we, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Then who is this man? If it's not you, if you're going to die, then who is this Son of Man? If he has to be lifted up, if he has. So Jesus said, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. But while you have the light, believe in the light that you may come, become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and was hidden from them. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Absolutely amazing that Jesus here is doing a work and doing a work, and yet what begins to happen is this. They don't believe. They cannot receive. And, and it's one of those things where in verse 37, it says that, that although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. And, and the word, that the word that Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, verse 39 says this, they could not believe because Isaiah again says, boy, he's blinded their eyes. It's an amazing thing that what Jesus is saying in verse 64, he says, and some of you who didn't, who, but there are some of you who do not believe. I'm speaking to you of life. Some of you just can't receive it. Some of you are pretending. Some of you are trying to, to you know, play act that you're, you're mine, but you're not. And Jesus, he knows. He knows who were hidden and who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said in verse 65, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to you by my Father. In verse 66, from that time many disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? It's amazing from that time many of his disciples went back. They began to walk with him no more. I want to back up just a second to the beginning of chapter 6. And I want us to look at just a couple of verses. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. Remember, right after Jesus had fed the multitude, went back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It says this in verse 22 of John 6, On the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got in boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they'd found him, on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? I want you to see what kind of effort 
they make for food. What kind of incredible effort they make for food. Now, keep in mind, just the day before, they were glutted, glutted, and now they're hungry again. And they're making this kind of effort for physical food. And now, when they make that kind of effort to pursue Jesus, now, again, take a look at what we saw here in verse 66. From that time, many disciples went back and walked with him no more. Boy, what a change, huh? What they're willing to do to follow him for food, but for eternal life? But it has to be what? Life according to the standard that Jesus gave. You have to believe in my atoning work. You have to know that I will die for your sins. And I think it's important that we see here that that Jesus is not after a following. Because when the people were disappointed, did Jesus change his message? Say, oh, wait, wait, wait. If you're going to leave, let me change. Let, let, Let me say something that you'll like. He doesn't do that. He simply, this is the truth. You either have to receive the truth or you're going to walk away from the truth. I'm not here to to say these things to make you feel all good. If the word of God makes you feel good, praise the Lord. But the word of God convicts you, you need to be convicted. You understand I'm not here to make you feel good or to make you feel bad. I'm here to proclaim the word of God. That's what I need to do. And this is what Jesus does. And because he does that, many of the people, now they begin to walk away. It's one of those things where when Jesus was feeding them, they had no problem. When he said, you have to believe in my death, burial, and resurrection, that's another problem. Because when you don't get the Jesus you're looking for, what are you going to do? When you don't get the scripture that you're looking for, what are you going to do? When you're looking for the word of God to allow you to do this thing, people do what? They walk away. I couldn't tell you that the people have come to me and, 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 and they said, look, I've gotten this scripture. It tells me I should marry this person. So what about this other passage? Have you considered this? Have you, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just, this is what I'm standing on. I don't want to hear the other things. I don't want to hear anything negative other than what I'm hearing now. I want to stand on this one word or this one belief. And, and people go into all these other things. And yet they're not wanting to accept him as he proclaims himself. When he's not the Jesus that you're expecting, people say, I don't want that Jesus. When he's not the God of just love, but he's the God who says, listen, you got to turn from your sin. Wait a second. Do I really have to stop loving this person? Do I have to stop living with this person? Yeah, you do. You have to follow the light. It's one of the things where it says this. In the Gospel of Luke, I want to read to you just a couple of passages because it's just one of those things that just sort of nails it. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, I'm going to read verse 21, and I'm going to jump over to verse 24. But in Luke 4, beginning verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as his custom was, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. He goes into the Sabbath. He goes, I mean, goes into the synagogue there on the Sabbath, and he begins to read. So they hand the book of Isaiah. And he talks about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. And then uniquely in verse 21, when he talks about the anointed of the Lord coming to proclaim the gospel of good news. Verse 21, he began to say, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Christ. Amazing. He comes to his hometown. He comes to Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue and he says, I have come as the Christ. I have come. Well, in verse 22, they all bore witness and they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of the mouth. He says, is this not Joseph's son? You can't be the Christ. We, we know you when you were a kid. You're a good kid, but we've known you. You're Joseph's son. And then Jesus says this in verse 24 of Luke 4. He said, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when heaven was shut up three years 
and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them, to none of the children of Israel, was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, Gentile territory, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Do you understand? He said, listen, you don't want it? We'll go to the Gentiles. I have no problem giving light to the Gentiles. Verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. How quickly they changed. He said, Messiah's come. Oh, you're just Joseph's kid. He says, listen, if you don't want to receive it, I'll, I'll take the message of eternal life, that I am the Christ of the Gentiles. Well, now they're mad, and it says this, verse 29, they rose up and they thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over a cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. How quickly people change they would follow him halfway around the lake of Galilee just so they could have another morsel of bread. But when he reveals who he is and they have to believe in his death and his resurrection, all of a sudden now they depart. And I think, boy, what an incredible contrast this is. Two passages in the Gospel of John I want you to gravitate to. And, and just let me read it to you. But it says this, in John chapter 12, I want to read it initially. I want to start in verse um, 12, and I'm going to read through verse 16. You guys already know this passage, but here in John 12, verses 12 to 16, it says, The next day a great multitude had come to the feast. And when they heard that Jesus was in Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. And the disciples did not understand this at first, but when Jesus glorified, then they remembered these things that were written. The multitude hear that Jesus is coming. They meet him on the path, Hosanna, Hosanna, singing the praises, laying down palm leaves. And they recognize, behold, your king is coming. And as they do this, such an incredible thing that they're proclaiming. And yet, just a few days later, there in John chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Pilate brings Jesus out before the people and says, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate is bringing out this beaten and bloody Jesus, and when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I take him and crucify him? For I find no fault in him. Absolutely amazing that here, they crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they begin to just say, crucify him. When Jesus isn't the Jesus that you expect, do you just simply say, I'm not going to follow this. When the word of God is not what you want to hear, do you say, I'm not going to follow this? It's an amazing thing that when Jesus is Lord and he's God and his word declares what it is, the word becomes a light that you follow. Not, not, not that you choose to say, I, I choose not to follow this, but I'll follow this. <laughs> you follow this. And many disciples said, I'm going to choose not to. I'm going to choose to go back and to not walk this light, not walk this truth, not walk with the Lord. Well, Jesus then goes to the 12 in verse 67 and says, do you also want to go away? He gives them a chance. <laughs> there goes the multitude. Do you want to follow the crowd? 
Go ahead. The crowd doesn't want it. Do you want to be in the majority? Go ahead. If you want to follow the crowd, go. But Simon Peter, verse 68, answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's absolutely amazing that Peter nails it. He says, what are we going to do? Only you have the words. Only you have the words of eternal life. You've spoken to this. You, 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 you've made a statement in verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. We believe in you. You alone, your words, the things that you've declared, that you are the Christ. We're going to follow you. Where else are we going to go? And then Peter makes this statement a little bit premature but he says, also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We. He's now making a mention, that, hey, me and these other 11 guys, we've come to know and to believe. Now, remember what happened. Verse 64, there were some who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Peter said, we believe. Jesus, I got to correct you, Peter. Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him and being one of the 12. It's interesting that when Peter says, we have come to believe, Jesus, uh, it's not we, not all of you. There, 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 is, there, there is one who is a devil. And that's a harsh statement to kind of make. I, I want to take you just a, a moment to just a, a, a passage here in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus does this amazing work. Initially, it says this. Verse 1 and 2 of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he would depart from this world. And to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end and supper being ended. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We begin to see that there... Satan has already moved and has been whispering in the heart of Judas. And then uniquely in verse 21, it makes this statement. John 13, 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. And he testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, he said this already back in chapter 6. There's going to be one who's the devil. There's going to be one who's going to betray me. But they're perplexed about who it is. They're, they're at a loss. We, we understand who's all here. Now, verse 23, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John, the disciple. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breath, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him and Jesus said to him, what you do do quickly. Amazingly, Jesus chose 12. And he knew that one of them was going to be a deceiver. One of them was going to be one that would betray him. And yet he chose him anyways. He recognized who this was. Understand, I want to share with you a little bit about what Judas was it made this statement in John chapter 12, verse 3. 
through 6, it says this, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Amazingly, that what Jesus does is he chooses Judas to be one of his disciples, and then he chooses to make Judas the treasurer. You need to keep the money box. And Jesus knew, you're taking what's in it. I understand that. But I'm still giving you every opportunity to do what's right. I'm giving you the opportunity to follow me. But this is why he comes in where, where Simon is saying, oh, we 12, we 12. And it's amazingly that the, the Lord's heart is, is not rejoicing on the 11. He's wanting to seek and save that one that's lost. He, he gives Judas one more time where he says, I, did I not choose the 12? One of you is the devil. One of you is sliding money from the money box. One of you is, is not wanting to follow what I'm speaking here. And it's important to realize that we come to the point and we think, you know what, if you follow Jesus closely, if you really understand him, there's no way you cannot believe. And I'm going to tell you, here's a man who followed Jesus for three and a half years and he's still rejected. Why? Because Jesus wasn't the Jesus that he was expecting. And, and he thought, I'm going to help you along to become this Jesus that I need you to be. Just accept the Jesus that he reveals himself as. And this is what's so important because I think that what happens is this, that when the word of God doesn't agree with you and what you want to do or, or the life of Jesus doesn't agree with you and what you want to do, that you choose that life. You choose to reject. You choose to walk away. And we need to be those who say, you know what? <laughs> Only you have the words of eternal life. And I need to follow the light where it leads me. Whatever the light is, whatever it leads me, I need to follow that light. Because you're, you're God. I don't need to follow the multitudes. I don't need to follow the people who are going to pat me on the back. I need to follow you. You're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You're God and you're man. And through you we have life. And only through you do we have life. But it's going to be what you reveal yourself at. And as you reveal the light, our job is just to believe and walk in it. And it's a hard concept. It's one of those things where we can look at the people and say, wow, you would just walk away. You would just walk away. How many times has the word of God not agreed with something you wanted to do and you do what you want to do instead? You know what it's called? It's called walking away. We do it. All of us are guilty of doing it. And it comes to Jesus, you need to walk in the light. Because the ones that aren't walking, if you're walking away, the, 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 the crazy thing is, is I love verse 66 because it doesn't say that they all stayed away. It just said, you walk away. But know this, come back. Follow the light, follow the Lord. Follow these words of everlasting life. Amen? Father, we are so grateful for just this passage. Lord, even we come to this understanding and say, wow, sometimes this is a hard saying. This is so difficult. But to recognize what it is that you've spoken, you've spoken that you've come from heaven, you've spoken that, that you would have this brutal atoning death, that there would be the, the, the breaking of your flesh and the shedding of your blood that your atonement would not simply be you passing away and dying. Your atonement would be you being brutally sacrificed for us that we could have life. We have to believe that, that, that you, God, chose that. You knew that from the foundation of the world. You knew that was going to be 
what would have to happen rather than us dying this horrible death, separation from you. You, Jesus, took that upon yourself. And if you would go to that extent, how is it that we won't simply just follow your word where the light directs us? It's one of those things we can look at and point our fingers of all those who have walked away, all those that Jesus, you weren't the Jesus that they expected. And how often, Lord, does your word do we walk away from? Because it's not the word that we want to hear. Teach us, Lord, to submit to this word, to submit to the light as you reveal what you desire for our lives, that we could walk in such a way to worship you. So knit us to your heart. Knit us to your word. We recognize where else are we going to go. You've given us eternal life. You've given us all that we need, and we just want to follow you. Wherever you lead, wherever you go, our desire is to follow you. Help us, Lord. Illuminate the path. Lead us by your spirit. Empower us by your spirit. Help us, Lord, through your spirit to believe to receive fully all that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.